when we're sitting around the dinner table at our house, I'm probably going to regret this, but we, somebody often says, okay, Google, and then they come up with something. So somebody says, okay, Google, I was afraid everyone's phones are going to go off. My phone's probably going off over there. Somebody will say, okay, Google, tell me a joke. Or they'll, so we've started kind of doing this thing where, okay, Google, tell me a joke. And then they were like, hey, what if we play a game? So then they will sit around the table and we'll play a trivia game. And uh, the phone will kind of read off this stuff and give everybody characters. And we've tried all sorts of other combinations. And recently, one of the kids said, tell us a story. And I was like, what's going to happen here? Is it going to tell us the story of Sleeping Beauty? Is it going to tell us the story Beauty and the Beast? I don't know what's going to happen. And it said, once there was a protagonist and a, some supporting characters, and they went on a journey, and the twist ending is it was all a dream. And the kids didn't get the inside jokes with MASH and Bob Newhart's show and some of those other things. But I listened to that, and I was like, there's something interesting about the elements of the story were right all there. I could put the Lord of the Rings in there. I could put some other favorite stories. I could put favorite children's stories. But it identified that the elements of a story are characters, journey, and a twist ending. But I think it made a mistake that there's actually one element of a story that, it, that is missing in the middle of that. And the, the, the missing element was resistance. There's something in the story has to be opposing and stopping. Because every good story isn't just everything was good, nothing bad happened, the day was over, everybody lived happily ever after. There's always some kind of resistance. There's always some kind of princess that nobody realizes is the princess. There's always a quest and these barriers on that journey. There's always resistance in the good stories that we listen to. And, and I think that the, one of the reasons for that is that that's the kind of thing we can identify. The, the element of a story that you and I can identify with is that element of there's some resistance, there's something keeping me and holding me back from what I want to do, from where I want to go, from what God has for me. Today I want to talk about what, it, what could it be? What is that element of resistance in our stories? What is one of those things that we don't really realize is actually keeping us from being the kind of people, the kind of families, the kind of church that God has called us to be? If, if our church and if our lives are a story, what is that, that part of the journey that's the resistance? What is that that's keeping us you know, we might identify some of those things. But, but could there be an element of resistance that all of us face and most of us just don't even pay attention to? That's what I want to show you today. So go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 11. This was actually supposed to be part of a series. But because we ended up having a baby and we had some guest preachers come in, the series is one sermon uh, from the book of Luke. Uh, and so I, we will be here through the afternoon. Just kidding. Uh, so, we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 11, where, where Jesus identifies for the Pharisees, but also for you and I. What is that thing that keeps us from the mission of God? What is the thing that keeps our church from its, so easily keeps our church from its mission? What I want to show you here in, is in Luke chapter 11, we're going to be reading verses, we're going to start in verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. 
But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, help us to have ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to identify what is one of those common things that keeps us from what you've called us to, from being the disciples that you've called us to, from living out the calling of heirs that you've invited us into. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The situation that we find ourselves is Jesus is invited by a Pharisee to come and eat in his home. Jesus, the friend of prostitutes and sinners, also is a friend of the Pharisees. Those are the, those are the strict religious elite. They're the guys that have power called the Sadducees. They just use religion to try and keep power. They, just, they don't really care about the religious part. They just want to be in charge. But the Pharisees actually, they wanted the kingdom of God to come. They had a legitimate desire for the kingdom of God to come. And so they thought if we could obligate God, if we keep all of the rules and make sure everybody else keeps all of the rules. And so this is one of those guys. The, the Pharisees, just to give you an idea of the kind of people they are, it, they were so concerned about lust that they would close their eyes if they saw a woman pass. And so they were known for walking into trees and walls. Uh, that's the kind of guys. They were so serious about the kingdom of God and, the, and outward righteousness that they, would, they not only had rules, God's rules, but then they made rules around rules to try and make sure we want to fulfill the mission of God for us. And that's what we see in this circumstance. That Jesus is invited to a meal at the Pharisee's house. And the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus didn't first wash before the meal. This is, this is the day before they knew about bacteria, before they knew about viruses. They weren't concerned with hand washing like my wife is concerned that we wash our hands after being in a public bathroom. That's not like the concern that they have is, oh man, Jesus is dirty. Like he's going to make the meal gross. No, you see, and there's no law in the Bible that says everybody has to wash their hands. There was a rule that the priests had to wash their hands because they needed to be ceremonially clean so that they could represent God to the people and the people to God. And so here in this meal, the Pharisee looks at Jesus and is like, Jesus, like you're not washing your hands. Because what they had done is they had taken this rule intended for priests, and one of their teachers, one of their rabbis said, well, if we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests, then we're going to make sure that everybody follows that rule. Everybody has to follow this rule because we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And so their attention is on the mission of God for us is to be a kingdom of priests. And so surely a teacher, a Messiah, a holy man is going to wash his hands before the meal. And so that's the situation that we find ourselves in. The Pharisees' goal is that we live out the mission of God and that we be a kingdom of priests. And they look at Jesus and say, he didn't wash his hands. So verse 39 says, Then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. What Jesus does here is he uses money to expose in them their, the resistance towards them being and living out the mission of God in their lives. Jesus gives them a very specific example and says that it's actually money can be the occasion for you to not actually fulfill a mission of God. It's not hand-washing and rule-following. It's actually what's going on in your hearts. 
So what I want to show you today is that this passage calls us, using money, to display the surpassing worth of Christ by fleeing the love of money. This passage calls us to display the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ by fleeing the love of money. I want to show you in this is two ways that we display the worth of Christ in money. Verse 39 to 41 says that we must identify the problem inside. We have to identify the problem inside. Verse 39, he says, you clean the outside, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. He's implying you guys are filthy. And it's not something that's outside of you that makes you filthy. If you're like me, and you think about all of the sins that could make somebody filthy, think about all the ones that you would go, these are the really bad ones that God must be really, really angry about. The ones that that really would disqualify a Christian from representing God to the world. If you're like me, outside of this verse, greed probably wouldn't be super high on the list. You and I might list all in any number of things, any number of addiction issues, any number of sexual sins. We might list any number of other sins, but Jesus goes, you Pharisees who want to live out the mission of God are full of greed, and so you are filthy and unfit for what, I've, what God has called you to do. Jesus uses money to say, look inside at your hearts. The God who made both the inside, or I'm sorry, the outside that you guys are concerned about also made the inside. So why might Jesus be so concerned with greed? Why would Jesus be so concerned with greed? The book of Galatians says that greed is is idolatry. Greed is this setting up of money and objects and things as gods in our life. And so what Jesus is saying is the thing that's keeping you from the mission of God is you are declaring to the world that money and homes and possessions are the thing that's of surpassing worth. And that makes you unfit for the kingdom of God. That makes you unfit, not just the kingdom of God, that makes you unfit for the mission of God. Jesus says, but as for what's inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Like, Jesus is not setting up just a new law. He's saying that from the inside out, you need to be changed and cleansed because greed doesn't actually display God to the world and the surpassing worth of Christ. It's actually somebody who blesses the poor that actually puts on display the lavish, self-giving, overflow love of God. Greed says, give me more. And that tells the world that more is better. And blessing and an outward focus and releasing from the inside out a love of money actually tells the world, this is what God is actually like. The surpassing thing that is worth everything to me is Jesus Christ. And so greedy hearts display the surpassing worth of money. And when we have greedy hearts, we are not fit for the mission of God. He tells those Pharisees, guys, you're so concerned with the mission of God, and yet you are greedy. That's, the, that's this pattern that we see in the book of Luke as Luke talks about money, is that greedy hearts display the wrong thing about God to the world, like a sign that's pointed in the wrong direction. A sign that says Green Bay this way, but is pointed to the south is never going to take somebody towards Green Bay. And in the same way, lives that say Jesus Christ is of surpassing worth, and yet our hearts are constantly consumed with getting more money, saving more money, spending more money. Actually, like a sign pointed in the wrong direction, tells the world that this is worth more to me than God is. Psalm 10 actually points out that those that are greedy for gain 
end up renouncing the Lord. That, that, that hearts that are set on money and objects and things end up leading them farther and farther away from the Lord. So the call in this is to look at ourselves and say, does my heart display the worth of Christ or does it display the worth of money? You, you see, he's actually not saying don't spend money, don't have money. He's saying don't love money because they're so greedy for more. And we can be greedy for more with extreme couponing or with lavish homes, with rooms that we can never use. You see, there's, like, it's, it's the greedy heart that's the issue, not the amount of money that we have. And so does my heart display the worth of Christ to my kids? Or does it display the worth of things? Does, does my heart display towards my neighbors the surpassing worth of Christ? Or does my heart say, oh man, I want more things. Because that will fulfill my heart. The second way that we display the worth of Christ in the mission of God is we connect our relationship with God with our relationship with money. Verse 41 says, but now as for what, oh, I'm sorry, verse 42 says, woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. The law said that you had to tithe what you work for and what you grow. It doesn't say that you have to tithe what you buy. And so the Pharisees were so concerned that everybody else isn't following the rules carefully enough. So they would not only tithe the things that they worked for and the things that they grew, but they would also tithe on the things that they bought. And Jesus is like, you guys think that money is just a list of rules to satisfy God, and yet you don't love justice. You don't do justice. You, don't, you have no love for God in your hearts. And so your money over here is a list of rules that you follow, and yet on the other hand, you've not connected that with the rest of your life. Doing justice, loving God, walking with God in your heart. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, everything is God's. Your money is God's, and justice should be God's, and love for God should be. You must connect your money and your relationship with God, and the way that you live in the world. It's not just a few things that you can throw at God here and there and make him happy. He wants all of you, and your money is a part of that. This, this weekend, we started preparing to decorate for Christmas. I think this evening we're going to decorate for Christmas, mainly because it's a short Christmas season. And the, this weekend, we went to Hobby Lobby to buy some ornaments and get some things, and... For several years, I've had my eyes on building some kind of a nativity stable to put with the nativity set that we've had. Kind of like Jesus and Mary, it's just kind of been wandering through our house every year trying to find a place for it because we didn't really have a barn, we didn't have a nativity. And this year, I saw what looked like the perfect one. I saw the, the, the perfect stable that we could get. I actually, I had to modify it just slightly. But I was like, hey, we can buy this. And I send him a text. And I said, hey, we can... This is, the, this is the stable we should get so we can put it behind our set. And she texted me back and said, you can build that. So uh, I was like, you know, I think she's right. So we went home, took a little bit of time Friday evening, a little bit of time Saturday afternoon, building this stable with found wood, with some extra paint that we had lying on the shelf. And I finished it. I have a couple more things to do. And I'm, I'm so proud that we've made this stable. 
And I'm telling you about this stable because we've built this stable, but we could unbuild it and change it. And I'm like, well, that's kind of crooked. I could straighten that. Or it's kind of whimsical. We could leave it that way. But this, this stable is built, but every part of it's still separate. Take a nail out here, unstick some glue, put some new part in here, and it's still going to be a stable. This passage says that the Pharisees treated their money like this little stable where you can just trade out little pieces here. It's all separate. It's not that big of a deal. You know, here, I, I tithe this, but I don't have to do justice or I don't have to have love for God. This passage says, no, our relationship with our money and our relationship with God is more like cooking food. It's inseparable. Once you've cooked a pot of chili, the spices and the beans and the tomatoes and the meat, everything has blended together. It's not just like the stable where you can take the parts apart and rebuild it. Our relationship with our money should be more like something we've cooked that the entire thing fuses into something new and so that the life of a Christian who's called to display the surpassing worth of Christ must see that our money and our hearts and our actions are inseparable. They go together and they declare to the world, Jesus Christ is better. Jesus Christ is better, and it's only when we stop dividing our money from justice. It's only when we stop dividing our money from love for God. It's only when we stop dividing justice and love for God that we actually display to the world. The world is the Lord's and everything in it. And that's when we can display to the world the surpassing worth of Christ. That's when we've fled the love of money, when we've said, you know what, I, my, this money that I am giving to my church as a declaration, to this, this money that I'm giving towards Christmas gifts, towards kids in our community, this money that I'm sending towards missions, this is inseparable from my love for God because I wouldn't do it otherwise and I wouldn't give this much. We've got to connect our relationship with God with our relationship with our money. This passage, if you're like me, gets kind of uncomfortable. This passage gets uncomfortable because I have Amazon lists of things that I want to buy. I have plans of home renovations that I want to do. I read this passage and I go, I am greedy. Who will save me? I am greedy. Who's going to save me? Somebody like me. Where's the good news for you and for me? If our hearts are set on things and not the surpassing worth of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says that Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. So that through his poverty, we may have his riches. That passage tells us that Jesus fulfills the law of God that you and I are judged by. This passage that rightfully says, you greedy hearts, you filthy people, how can you display the surpassing worth of Christ? Says that Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor. He fulfilled this passage in our place. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't say, you filthy, greedy people. He instead says, welcome into this relationship with me. Welcome, you're welcome with my riches. You have my record. You have my riches. You have everything that I have. Now go and declare to the world the surpassing greatness of Christ. Money has no hold on you anymore. And greed is no judgment over you. Maybe you go, how can I know that this is mine? Joe, what do you mean Jesus gave himself for me? Though he was rich, became... What do, you, what do you mean by that? The story of the Bible says that Jesus made the world, or that God made the world, the Son made the world, and he made it good, and he looked out on it. Looked out on it and said, it is very good. And then he put Adam and Eve in it um, and said, they are very good. Now be little kings and little queens underneath me. You rule and shep shepherd this world. Care for this world. And Adam and Eve 
and you and I and everyone in our lives said, no, we will live our own way. We will do our own thing. God, we do not want you. The Bible says that God will one day crush his enemies. He will one day defeat his enemies. His enemies will one day spend eternity in hell. And yet, instead of leaving us there, he left his riches, taking on poverty as the son of Joseph and Mary, living the life that you and I must, should live, free from greed, though tempted with it, free from covetousness, even though he was tempted with it. And then he died the death of a greedy thief, of a greedy murderer, that you and I should die. And then was raised to life as God's great yes on his life so that all who repent of sin and turn and trust in Christ, who say, God, I have lived in ways underneath your authority, greedy for idols and greedy for things. But God, I give that up and I will take Jesus and the surpassing riches that he is and offers. The Bible says that those who repent of sin and trust in Christ in that way are made right with God, welcomed in with all of his great riches. And then changes us from the inside out with new hearts that begin to live in the world and say, yes, I see money. Yes, I see objects. Yes, I see things. But Jesus is better. Imagine what it looks like for one person to begin to live this out. Instead of a a greedy, money-gripped heart. Hearts that say, we use money but we love Jesus. We use money, but we love Jesus. That looks different in a workplace. That looks different as a family begins to say, my money is not my own and it's also not my God. Imagine what it looks like for 60 people at Belgium Community Church to declare to Belgium and to the surrounding communities that Jesus is better, way better than money. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that though you were rich, you gave that up and became poor so that out of your poverty, we could have true riches. Help us to flee the love of money, to know, to believe, and to declare that Jesus is better. In Jesus' name, amen.